We're going to be in Malachi chapter 2 this morning. Um, we, we've been moving, moving along talking about how do we break spiritual apathy. And when, when we look at the book of Malachi, what it is, is this prophet, this messenger named Malachi, who has gotten this word from God. And he has to deliver some pretty bad news to a pretty corrupt people of Israel. They have recently returned within the last 100 years out of bondage to the Babylonians. They now find themselves in Israel trying to rebuild, trying to, to fix themselves, to restore what they once were. But they have quickly found themselves falling right back into their old habits and in their old ways. So God sends them these seven oracles that are warnings that he's trying to give to his people that it's easy for us to read this and go, man, this must have been some bad people not doing what they're supposed to. But, but I don't want you to miss this. God's just not talking to Israel. He's talking to me. And he's talking to you as individuals. And he's talking to us as a church, as a whole, and the universal church, the big C church. There's some, some warnings here that we have to be very careful. God starts his letter off in Malachi chapter 1 affirming his love for the people. I love you. I'm your father. I care. Right? And they come back when God tells them that he loves them and gives them all these reasonings for why he loves. They ask the question to God, well, how have you loved us? If you love us so much, tell us how. Prove it to us. And God's like, I already have. I have loved you unconditionally. And then he, then he brings them on talking about their lack of worship. And they ask the question, please tell me, God, how we have defiled you. Tell us what we have done to make worship so bad. And God says it was your lack of worship. That you're just going through the motions, just doing the same old things, but your heart is not anywhere involved in the process of worshiping me for who I am. And that brings us to Malachi chapter 2, where we're going to see very quickly a pattern of how the people of Israel, God's chosen people, have drifted. They have drifted away from what they once knew. Now, we all live close to the beach. We've all been to the beach at some point. And um, y'all ever met somebody who's never been to the beach? Like, it's just the weirdest thing because it's so normal for us. And I, I remember going to a conference um, a, a few years ago, and I was asking like, everybody, like, what are y'all doing? Because we had some, some time. And they're like, we're going to the beach. Like, well, God, we do that all the time. Like, we have never seen it. And this guy was like 50 years old, had never seen the beach before. So he would not understand this illustration. But you know how you go to the beach and you set up shop. Maybe some of you are divas like I am. You got to have the big tent because if the sun touches you, it's an awful day at the beach, right? You got to have something comfortable to sit on. You got to have everything. Like, it's, you've, you've gone through the Sky Mall catalog and purchased everything you need to be on the beach. And you set up shop, and you tell your kids, when you're out in the water, this is where we are. You know what I'm talking about? Have y'all ever been there where when you were growing up, and you were at the beach, and you went out in the water, and you've been playing for like an hour, and you look back at the shore, and nothing looks like it did when you started? It's like, wait, time out. Where, where'd my family go? Like, they just leave? And you realize, for the last hour, you have drifted two miles down the beach. You, you started in Sullivan's Island, but you have now found yourself in the Isle of Palms trying to figure out how did I get from there to here because we, we took our eyes off of where we planted ourselves and this is where, this is where we belong. 
And, and in the process of drifting away from, from your place, it's caused by we, we lose track of what's going on around us. We're enjoying the moment so much because it's fun, it's enjoyable, you get distracted with some dolphins, right? And then the next thing you know, you've drifted so far away. And this is exactly what has happened to Israel. That the landmark was set. They go out and they slowly but surely drift away from what God has called them to do. So th this Malachi chapter 2 is really a warning, not just to leaders, not just to priests, but to us as well. That it's so easy for us, it's this gravitational pull that we will find ourselves in that will pull us away from what is good, what is, what is godly, and, and we will pull and drift away from the things that God has called us to. So this is a warning to them and to us that you have drifted. You have drifted. Israel never did good with blessing. I don't know if you've noticed that. You read the Old Testament, God would bless them, they would mess it up. It's like, here's a brand new car, they would go total it. Like, it didn't matter what they did. They just did not know how to handle the blessings of God. We find them in their moments of desperation, that they would cry out to God. Remember when Moses would lead them out of Egypt, and they would get to the Red Sea, and they hear this noise behind them like thunder, and here come the Egyptians ready to take them out. And it's in that moment of desperation that they start, God, please, 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 help us, help us, help us. And the, the water divides, and they, they cross the water, and then all of Pharaoh's army drowns in the water, and, and they're protected, and then they go back on. On the other side, they're safe, and then what happens? They, they find every reason to complain about the blessings. Oh, we're hungry, we don't have anything, so God gives them manna. They have manna every day. What do they have to do to get it? Nothing, just go out and grab it. What do they do? We're so tired of eating manna. Complaining about the blessing. We want some meat. So God said, fine, I'll give you quail. Every day they had quail, more than they knew what to do with. After a while, what happened to that blessing? Oh, we're so tired of eating quail every day. They, they did not know how to handle the blessings, and they would tend to forget what God had done for them. Does that, does that ring a bell for us? Like sometimes we will forget the blessing. Sometimes we don't know how to handle the blessing. And, and you're probably thinking like, well, I haven't received the blessing. And oftentimes the reason that you have not received the blessing is because you're not ready to handle whatever the blessing is going to be that God's trying to give you. It would be like giving, giving your car keys, going back there in the back and telling one of them in the toddler room, you've won a free car, and then turning them loose in the parking lot with your keys. That's not going to go well, right? And they're pretty smart. They'll probably figure out how to, how to drive it. And so this passage is showing how quickly we forget and how quickly we drift. When we're not focused and not paying attention on the things that God has asked us to pay attention to, not living and accepting the blessing that we, we have been given, we drift. And we see this in Malachi 2. He says this, And now, O priest, so he's talking to the priest here, but let me, this is where people go, oh, time out. This is about the pastors of the church, not about me. Um, I would just like to point your attention to 1 Peter chapter 2 when he says that we have been called, we are a holy chosen nation. We are a priesthood. You are ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? So don't, don't pan this on just pastors. This is for all of us. And he says, oh, priest, this, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take heart, does this sound like a parent talking to their kid? Right? Because it's, it's God talking to his kids. If you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. 
Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. I've already, I've already cursed the blessings. So what is the priest's blessings that, that God is talking about here? And what he's saying is when the Israelites entered into the promised land, every single tribe received a piece of land. So all 12 tribes, everybody got a piece of land with the exception of the priest who came from the tribe of the Levites. So they did not get land because they weren't going to let all the priests just have one thing. Somebody had to go to all these tribes and lead them, teach them how to worship, to teach them how to, how to serve, how to honor God. So they didn't get any. So the blessing for the priest was not the land. The blessing was a relationship with God, that they had some benefit, that he's a personal God, that you're going to be able to go into his presence and have relationship with him, and that was the blessing. So based on the posture of their heart, their blessings were going to be cursed. This is not, you're not going to have this anymore. You're not going to have this access anymore. I'm going to take my hand of blessing off of you. The curse is this, is that God's just going to let them do whatever it is they want to do, and they're going to have to deal with the consequences of whatever their decisions were. Does that mean that he didn't love them? No, he's proven that he loved them unconditionally. But at some point, we'll just go, I'll let you do it. You, you know what? You think you know better? I'm just going to let it happen. Did your parents ever do that to you? Like, okay, you know more than I do, right? And now here we are years later going, they, they may have been right. They may, they may have been right. And so he goes on in verse 3, he says, Behold, I will rebuke your offspring. So this is not just for me, this is for your kids too. And, and listen to this, this is the weirdest verse in the Bible. I, I will rebuke your offspring, and I will spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. Cameron asked me this week what the, what the theme of today's message was, and I sent him this verse. I said, can you find us a song about rubbing dung in somebody's face, right? Now, who's saying, who is saying these things? This is God telling the people that I will rebuke the offspring. Because it's, it's, it's like this is sickening that, that you know what to do and you're not doing it. You're constantly going back, not accepting the blessing. And you're doing the things that you want to do. It makes me want to just rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces. You ever gotten that argument with somebody and that was the comeback that you used for them? The dung of your offerings. He's, he's saying that you're, it's waste. Even your offerings is just waste. Like, who wants that? Could you imagine giving that to God? Here, here, here's my offering. Here's my blessing. It's the worst of me right here. And he says, you shall be taken away with it. I'll, I'll get rid of all of it. So what he's saying is this, is when, when you would make an offering, you would have to, any hunters in the house? All right, one. Okay, cool. You'll get this. When, I don't know if you know this, but when you, you shoot a deer, for instance, you have to field dress this thing. So you've got to take some things out of it, right? So it's, it's not like here's the whole thing and you process liver, kidneys. You've got to take all these vital organs out, especially the stomach, because that will ruin all the meat. When they would bring an offering, what they were supposed to do was clean it out, field dress it, and then bring it so that it was clean and pure. They would take out all these internal organs. And the priests were not only bringing lame animals, because we saw that in, in the last chapter, but they were also bringing animals that they didn't even clean. They were bringing unclean sacrifices to a holy God. So God says, 
I'm about to take you out of the temple just like you're supposed to be taking the organs out of the animal and dispose of it. But, but you're not even, you're not, again, you're not following the things that I've asked you to follow. And so he has these harsh words. They are treating God as if he is a common, everyday God. That he does, there's no reverence, there's no sacredness, there's no holiness. He's just an everyday God that gives us what we want. It's almost as if Israel is treating him as if he's some kind of spiritual vending machine. That when I need something, I'll punch in the right code and it'll drop the blessing. And then I complain because I didn't get the right thing when the blessing got stuck in the machine. The question is, if you're a follower of Jesus, do you treat him as if he's common? I mean, do you come into his presence as if he's just a common thing, he, he's just a character in the Bible, or, or I believe in him, or I compartmentalize him? Is he just common to us? Because there's serious warnings for people who treat Jesus as if he's common, or treating God as if he's just common. He says this about it. If you treat him as common and there's no reverence and sacredness, he's going to spread dung on your face and kick you out. That's, that's not my words. I'm, I'm just a mailman here delivering the message of what the scriptures say. So when you come to church, what are you offering God? Are you bringing your first and your best to him? In your worship? In your service? In your conversations with people? Are you bringing your first and your best? Look what he says in verse 4. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. Now what he's referring to there, you've got to go back to Exodus chapter 32. And if you remember, there's a moment where Moses goes up on the mountainside to get the Ten Commandments. While he's up there, the people get bored and they're like, oh, I don't think he's coming back. We should probably get ourselves a God. And I love Aaron, if you read Exodus 32, when Moses comes and confronts Aaron on, on them built, taking all their gold, melting it down, he's like, they, they, they gave me all their gold, so I just made it. As if he had been forced, like, if you don't do this, Aaron, we're, like, we're going to take you out. But Moses confronts them and wants to know, why in the world did you melt all this gold and create this idol? And they were worshiping it. When Moses is coming down off the mountain, he hears singing and rejoicing and worship, and they're worshiping a golden calf. They have now looked just like their idols. Which is why Moses would come down and use this language. He said, you are stiff-necked people. Remember, have you heard that in the New Testament? Jesus wasn't talking about, Moses wasn't talking about people that were stiff-necked, like, look at us, this is what we do. Think about an idol for a second. It's stationary. You stiff-necked. You just stand there, and you look just like the idols that are around you. And he gives them that warning. And this is a really weird thing, too. There's a lot of weird stuff in the Old Testament. But if you'll read through Exodus chapter 32, here's what he said. <laughs> and this is a weird, again, process. But he goes, hey, here's what we're going to do. I want you to take your golden calf, and we're going to melt it down. And then I'm going to beat it into powder. And then they put water to it and mixed it like it was Kool-Aid. And they said, okay, you're going to eat it. And they passed the cup around. They all had to drink their gold. Think about that. That, like, that's, you would think that that was the story. Like, okay, here's the punishment. You're going to drink this. And then God, uh, Moses comes and says, I need to know who's with me. Like, who's coming with me? Who is for God and who's not? And the tribe of Levi said, we're in, we're with you. And they take sides with Moses. And Moses says, Levi, since you've done this, you're the priesthood. 
You're going to be the priest. You're going to get the blessing. And then they go and kill 3,000 people among them to, to purge out everything, to reestablish what they're supposed to be. We don't do church like that anymore. But if we did, I just probably figured the church rolls would be pretty short. Could you imagine having to melt down your idol and drink it? Could you imagine the, the, the penalty? Here's what I want you to understand. God takes this stuff way more serious than we do. And I'm talking for all of I'm talking for me too. Because he's not a common God. He is a way maker. That God is always working. God is always doing something. That he's a God that demands us to worship him for who he is. The cross and the gospel demands a response for us because he is a holy, perfect God. And so... He's telling them that I, I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi is going to stand. And this is the covenant that you're, you're going to be with me because they said we're going to go with God. He says, my covenant with them in verse 5 was one of life and peace. And I give, I give them to him. It was a covenant of fear and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. He said, true instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found in his lips. And he walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many from iniquity. In other words, he's saying, why can't you be like Levi? Because he was doing everything. He wasn't perfect, but he was living out the calling that God had given him. He was being obedient to God. He was in reverence with God. He was worshiping God. He was turning people away from sin and pointing him back to the true God. And he's saying the Levites started here in Exodus 32, and they become the priests of the nation. And by the time we get to Malachi, God's going, oh my gosh, what are y'all doing? Like, what, what are you doing? Now he's telling them that he's going to take the blessing away from them. And he continues in verse 7, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. Like, this is what you're supposed to do. But this is what it is. It's like those Pinterest projects. Y'all seen those, those pictures like, here's the Pinterest project, and here's what happened when I tried it. Doesn't look like a cake anymore. You know what I mean? And he goes on in, in the next verse. He says, you, you have caused, and remember, who's he talking to? The priest. The priests are supposed to lead the people. Listen to what he says. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. Here's what they were doing. And we get this warning in First Timothy. Because in First Timothy or Second Timothy, he says this, is that there's going to come a day where people aren't going to be wanting to listen to sound doctrine. That you're going to have to preach whatever it is just to tickle their ears and give them what they want. It's a consumer-based religion. And we're confronted with that here in Malachi when he says that you, instead of preaching and teaching the things of God, what you're doing is preaching and teaching the things that people want. They're just going to make them happy, but it's not really helping them to grow. He says, so you, by doing so, by teaching doctrine that's not sound, what you have done is you've caused harm and you've shown partiality to the instruction of the things that I've asked you to teach. So why is God rebuking them? Because we have to go back to that question. Would you agree with me up to this point? These are some very harsh words coming from God to his people. 
you have to go back to chapter 1. He's rebuking because he loves. He expects more out of them. They have been giving blessing, and they're throwing the blessing away. But yet, God continually pursues them with an unconditional love. God's saying, I love you enough to rebuke you. Please pay attention. Pay attention to the things that I'm saying. Because they have drifted. They have drifted from Exodus 32 with a covenant to Malachi. They're doing whatever they want, teaching whatever they want. That's a big drift. And drifting is not just a part of the Old Testament. It's part of the New Testament church too. And it's part of the church today. Because we are all vulnerable to drifting. And, and he says this, and we go to Revelation chapter 2. Um, yeah, we jump from Malachi to Revelation. Bear with me. And when we get to Revelation, there is, there is a church called Ephesus, right? There was a book written, a letter written to it that Paul wrote called the, the Ephesians. So it was a letter to the church in Ephesus. And in verse 1, he says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And I want you to understand, here, here's the cool thing about this church. Paul planted this church, okay? That was the church planter. Um, it was pastored by Timothy. And one of their elders was John. They had a pretty good system, right? Paul planted, Timothy pastors, John was an elder overseeing it, making sure things were, were staying in line. It was a great church. But watch this. These are, this is Jesus' words in the book of Revelation to these seven churches, and, and, and Ephesians is the first one that he gets. He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. So it's like, oh, thank you, Jesus. This is a good thing that you're speaking about our church, that you know our hard work, you know that we're patient, you know that we endure, you know that we cannot bear to see sin in our lives and evil in our communities. And he says, but, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and aren't. You, you called out the false teachers and found them to be false. And he says, I know you are enduring and patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you've not grown weary in doing so. And see, at this point, you're, this is being read to you at the church. And you're like, man, we're going to get stickers today. Like, he really loves us. And we're, we're, we're doing a great job. But he says this, but I have this against you. That but really gets in the way, doesn't it? When you're reading scripture and it's like, but, oh, here it comes. And he says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. You're doing all the right things. You're being patient. You're enduring. You're doing the ministry. You're doing the work. But here's the thing. You walked away from your first love, and the first love, Church of Ephesus, was me. And you're doing all these things, but worshiping me. You're doing all these things, but not in my name. He's saying this, hey, Ephesus, you have drifted. You have drifted. And verse 5 tells them how to stop drifting. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, Think back to where you were in the very beginning. Repent. Do the works that you did at first. And if not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand. And, and that's symbolic in the book of Revelation for um, 
for God's presence, His immediate presence. I'll remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, here's something very unique. We read that and go, oh man, what did they do? What did they do in the beginning? What is it that they need to go back to? Well, we actually have that in our Bibles. Because when the book, when, when the book of, when the church of Ephesus was started, we can go back right here to Acts chapter 19 and get a snapshot of what it was. So let me, let me walk you through this real quick. There, there, there are a few things that the story of the church of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, he starts out with this in verse 17. And this, so let's stop right there. What is he talking about when he says, and this? There are three thises. Is that a word? It is now. There are three thises. So when he says, and this, number one would be spirit-filled evangelism. Spirit-filled evangelism. You can, you can go back to the top of, of 19 and read through verses 1 through 10, and you'll see this. There is spirit-filled evangelism. The people... They had heard about Jesus. They knew that there was a store. They were preaching and teaching what it was that they knew. And when Paul comes into town, Paul says, Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? And they said, What is this? And Paul tells them about the Holy Spirit. They receive the Holy Spirit, and then they go in, and they start ministering the gospel in the power of God. So there's a Spirit-filled evangelism. Okay? That has to be present in the church because the older the church gets and the bigger the church gets, there's a natural drift to go to take care of insiders and not worry about outsiders anymore. Right? And that's a major drift. So they're, they're, the first this is spirit-filled evangelism. Here's the second one, and, and this is in verses 11 through 12, but there's life transformation. Like people's lives, there were sick people, there were dead people, and they were being healed and brought back to life. It, it actually tells us in those verses that there was so much of the Spirit on Paul that he couldn't be everywhere at one time. So they would just say, here's a handkerchief. Could you touch it? Bless it. And he would, the people were taking those handkerchiefs and touching sick people, and they were being healed with handkerchiefs. There was, and by the way, this stuff can still happen because he's the same God that was in the book of Acts that is in here right now, right? So there's a life transformation. Demon-possessed people. The demons being cast off and, and receiving Christ. So the second this was life transformation. The third one was, was they had to stop pretending in Jesus' name. Okay? Don't pretend to have it all together. Live out the teachings that you've been taught. And we see this in verse 13. Because, and I'll just briefly give you this oversight. There were these seven sons of, of this guy named um, Sceva. And they traveled around, and they were casting out demons in Jesus' name. Problem was, they didn't know Jesus. But they were casting things out because this, they, they, hey, let's get on this business venture, and we can go around casting demons out of people in Jesus' name when we don't really know who he is. And they claimed to do things on behalf of God. And when you read these verses, it's really interesting. They, they were throwing demons out. And in this one particular case here, they throw a demon out, and the demon says, hey, guys, we don't know you to the seven sons. The demon tells, I don't know you. And then it does something very interesting. When the demon says, we don't know you, the demons beat the guys up. <laughs> so, uh, so don't pretend to, to know Jesus because there's a consequence to that, right? So the demons... Is, is there, you know, are we learning some crazy stuff in the scriptures today? Dung in your face and uh, drinking gold and now demons beating people up. 
Um, and maybe that's your prayer for some people in your life, that God, I just pray the demons will beat them up, whatever it takes. And so the church at Ephesus understood that if you pretend in Jesus' name, it's not going to go well. You need to be real in, in, in this crooked and depraved generation. We need to live out the values. And so they believed that the relationship with Jesus was personal. Here he goes in verse 17. He says this. They, they became, so and this, and they became known, they became known to all the residents. Ephesus was a very important place. They became known to both Jews and Greeks. What does Ephesus need to get back to? They need to get back to the Gospels for everybody. We live in such a hostile culture that is trying to place divides between us politically, ethnically, our, our skin color. They, the gospel is for every single person. The person that is strung out on drugs, the person that can't seem to get the marriage together, the person that is financially broke for the homeless guy that's down the street pushing the buggy. The gospel is for everybody. And it's not good news if people don't hear it. So the good news has to get to the people. So the early church, the, the church in Ephesus, was you got to get back to the gospel being for everybody. You've abandoned those things. And then he goes on to say, and fear fell upon them all because there's a growing awe of God. Because they couldn't believe that this God, the more that they studied, the more that they pushed into this relationship, they couldn't believe that this God loved them so much. And there was just this natural awe that we should never get past the gospel. When we read that and we read the crucifixion story and go, he did that for me. There's an awe about it. And he says, in the, in the name of the Lord Jesus was worshipped. That their first marking was not just that the gospel's for everybody and there's this growing awe of God. When you begin to understand who God is, like, oh, man. There's this worship. There's this natural thing. We talked about it last week. That Jesus' name is being proclaimed. They're not proclaiming the pastors. They're not going, man, we got a great pastor. We love Timothy. Man, the guy Paul that planted us is fantastic. Jesus' name is the only one being lifted up. That's important. Because when we all stand and Revelation shows and we stand in unity as every tribe and nation, we stand around the throne of God, nobody's going to be chanting together, church. Or fill in the blank of any church. The only name that's going to stand the test of time is going to be the name of Jesus. And that's going to be the very thing that we proclaim and they understood it. this is not about anything else but Jesus because we've encountered him. And he goes and, and, and he says, also many of those who are now believers, those who are now believers, they came and they were confessing and, and they were now believers because there was a spirit-filled evangelism that was taking place. The Holy Spirit was giving them spiritual conversations. And he says, and many of those who are now believers came, they were confessing and divulging their practices. Because listen, Ephesus, was, was the home of Satan because there were all kinds of things that were going on, black magic and sorcery and all kinds of weird stuff that were happening. And now these believers in Ephesus are repenting of their sin and confessing. There has to be authentic confession. Authentic confession. Can I tell you that nothing in your life will change if you are not authentic? You can hide behind things, but nothing will ever change if you don't tell yourself the truth. And if you don't tell somebody else the truth. Confess. My question is, who are we confessing to? James, the brother of Jesus, 
says in James chapter 5, 16, that you confess your sins to one another, and there you'll find healing. That doesn't mean just go find some random person and start confessing your sin to. Find someone you have a relationship and loves Jesus and confess. Who is interceding on your behalf? Who, who, who's joining you with Jesus and interceding with you in your confessions? And in verse 19, he says this, And a number of those who had practiced magic arts, they brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of everything. And they counted the value of them and they found it that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. There's now not only an authentic confession, there's now a true repentance. There's a true repentance. There was a change in behavior, not just in their feelings. I'm not asking you to bring your CDs and, and things that aren't Christian and let's burn those things. That's not, what we're, that's not what we're doing. But the very thing, their very support, the very thing that was giving them stability financially, the thing that they found their identity in, they're bringing those books, the thing that they were so dependent on, they're bringing them and they're burning those things in the sight of everybody. And it says they counted the value of them. And when you count the value of them, um, this, this is 50,000 pieces of silver Today's money would equate to somewhere around $6 million in books. It's a pretty big library. It was a true repentance. And I'm going to give you two extra ones. I know you're out of paper here, but let me give you two extra ones. There's another mark that they had to get back to, and that was sacrificial giving. They sacrificially poured out. They, they gave. They gave everything they have. They gave their first and their best because they realized that Jesus was the first and the best that gave himself. And they gave. And then they did this. They taught the Bible. Crazy things happen when the Bible's being taught. He says in, in verse 20, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and to prevail mightily. Because the word doesn't return void. When God's word goes out, the promises go out with it, all 4,730 whatever it was, promises are all yes and amen and him. And they taught the Bible of what they had. Obviously, they didn't have a New Testament. They taught what they had, what they knew, their experiences, what they had encountered. They're teaching the Bible in the truth. Malachi's Israel's teaching at a partial message. They would preach what, they, what people wanted to hear and, and not teach the authoritative word of God. They, they wouldn't do it. And so you and I stand on the authority of the Word of God. We, we have it. And what God was doing in their church, and this is so important, what God was doing in the church of Ephesus did not stay in the church of Ephesus. It went out, and it was in the surrounding areas because it was too good just to stay in one place. You ever notice he says that we're to be salt and light? Like, too much salt is not a good thing. We can't have a bunch of salt in one place. It, it kind of gets nasty after a while. You know what I'm saying? But when you spread salt among your plate, it adds flavor and taste to it. Makes it digestible at that point. We, we are to spread, and, and what happens here can't stay here. God did not save us so that we could come to church a couple of times a month, and that we could give and we can serve and go to a disciple group. He didn't save us for that. God has saved us for us to change the world and proclaim his goodness and his greatness so the world could be reconciled unto him. Look, look at what he says in 23 through 26. He says, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. 
for a man named Demetrius. He's a silversmith. He made these silver shrines of, of Artemis. And he brought no little business to the craftsmen. And these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. And he said this, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, <laughs> listen to this, this Paul has persuaded and he's turned away a great many people saying the gods made with hands are not gods. They had caused so much disruption in proclaiming the gospel that the economy of selling these false gods had now collapsed because God was being proclaimed. That was a disturbance. When we preach the gospel into a crooked and depraved generation, it should cause a disruption because the gospel is a disruption of our lives. It's a disruption. It doesn't mean that we proclaim the gospel with hatred. It doesn't mean that we proclaim it with a, I know better than you. We proclaim it because we love people and we, complain, we, we give it and, and speak it with grace and with truth as Jesus has commanded us. So many people were turning from pagan idols, shutting down their idolatrous businesses, burning their books, going all in. Pastuo is, is what the gospel would say, of giving everything that we have. Can you imagine if churches caught wind of the Holy Spirit? And begin to proclaim and live out this authentic possession, uh, this authentic confession, and, and having true repentance, and, and having this spirit-filled evangelism. What would our community look like? What, what about the people who have been strung out on drugs for years in our community are no longer strung out on drugs because they found the void they've been trying to fill? Because the church has made the proclamation and said the gospel's for you too. What if, what if we were able to put people in DSS out of a job? Because men and women said, no, we're not going to just adopt boys and girls. We're going to proclaim the gospel and help restore these families and, and help fix that which was broken because we know the answer to that is Jesus. Can you imagine? Like, I think a lot of times we just don't imagine what it could be if we just let the Holy Spirit take control. Just, just imagine with me of having families being restored, broken marriages being put back together, friendships that were destroyed over whatever, hearing Jesus and Jesus coming in and just correcting it and fixing it and getting glory for it. What would happen? And here's our point. If, if you, God, God gives us Jesus as a perfect sacrifice. So we don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be perfect to come to church here. Right? This is a, this is a, a refuge for the broken. It's a refuge for the broken. Because we know that God has given us Jesus, his son, and has shared the hope of what it can be and restored our relationship with him and he gave us the Holy Spirit to be able to live out the things that he's called us to so let me ask you this if you if you've drifted in your personal relationship you've drifted maybe maybe you're not confessing maybe you've not repented maybe evangelism is not not in your wheelhouse you haven't even talked you not you haven't had a spiritual conversation there's some repentance maybe you've just lost your growing awe of God don't sit here 
And here this is condemnation. Here this is God going, I love you, wake up, because you're missing out. You're missing out. You, you, you have a full, full buffet in front of you, but you're choosing to eat off the value menu. And he's calling you in to sit at the table with him, the king who calls you son and daughter. Have you drifted? Don't ever lose your awe of God. Don't, don't ever worry about, you know, spend time in his word. Spend time in his word. And even when you don't feel like it. Worship your way back into it. Proclaim the promises of God over your life. Worship. Raise a hand. Sing a little louder. Take advantage of raising your hands. You never know what's going to happen tomorrow. You may only be, be able to raise a hand. Sing louder. Confess your sin. Repent. God's not waiting on you to repent so he can tell you how awful you are. He's waiting you to repent so he tells you how much he loves you and that you have been forgiven. What I would encourage you to do is to just hear from God and ask him, have you taken your eyes off the cross? That is our marker to get back where we need to be as a church and as individuals. So Jesus said, you have forgotten your first love. Have we? Have we forgotten our first love? We have to pursue the relationship. Pursue it. So we're going we're gonna to do something a little bit different than what we normally do when we, we close. But, you know, we talk about worship being our response to everything. So this morning, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to do three things. We're going to bring, we're going to take up our offering as it is a response of worship. We're going to sing because we're going to proclaim the goodness and the awe of who God is. And then we're going to spend some time praying, just confessing to God where, God, I, I have failed in this moment. I have failed in this. I, I, I've drifted from this to here. And we're just spend some time just praying for, to God, responding to whatever it is that he is teaching you and telling you this morning. Would you pray with me, Father? I thank you so much for who you are today. While we have, so easily we drift, all of us have drifted. I am so, so very thankful that in the drifting, you've thrown the lifeline to pull us back. So I pray in this moment as we, we bring and sing and pray that these be in our responses that you would work in them, in our obedience. Teach us and show us what it is that you would have us to do today. And we pray these things in your name.